is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Chris Seedens in today for Rob Archer. And I'm Brian Ping in for Charles Feldman. Leaving California and taking their tax dollars with them, we go in-depth into how California's population decline is hurting Sacramento's wallet. And Hollywood may be on strike, but that doesn't mean you can't watch new movies. We'll be talking to two filmmakers. They'll be joining us in studio, talking about the strikes and their new sci-fi comedy. It stars Jamie Foxx. We start with people leaving the Golden State and the lost tax revenue. Leo Hanian is an economics professor at UCLA and also a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. If you can get back to the how serious this might get with less money coming into our, our coffers. Well, it, it is serious because California's state budget has grown enormously in recent years. Just four years ago, it was about $200 billion. Now it's a $300 billion budget. So California is not well set up to have a loss of tax revenue, but we're losing tax revenue. As, as you mentioned, that tax revenue is about $340 million less than what we saw. Um, a lot of very high-income people now are leaving the state, certainly leaving from the standpoint of establishing tax residency in states such as Nevada or Texas or Florida. And that, is, that leaves California so vulnerable because California depends so much on the top 1% in terms of personal income tax and they depend critically on the top one-tenth of one percent, many of whom are paying millions of dollars in taxes every year. We, we just can't afford to lose those people in other states. So this is, a, this is a substantial problem, and if you compound that with the number of businesses who are leaving California, um, it's something that policymakers need to deal with very, very soon. Do you think uh, the burden could end up falling on working Californians to shore this up? Well, politically, that's a tough one to push, given the way the state is structured uh, in terms of the Democratic Party, and there's a lot of progressive political interests within the state. But uh, at the end of the day, the sales tax is a way to try to push back on that loss of revenue. That hits everyone, um, and proportionally, it tends to hit middle and lower income households more there's a good chance that they might feel more pain. It certainly depends on the national economy, but California is a state uh, that's close to the bottom in terms of economic performance from from losing residents. Um, we just can't really afford to lose any more. Um, and taxes are a big part of that. Cost of li- living is a big part of that. Energy costs, gasoline costs are a big part of that. This has been with us for a long time. Um, we need to turn this around sooner than later. All right. Lee, thank you. Again, that's Leo Heenian. He is an economics professor at UCLA and uh, also a senior fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Heavy fighting has been reported in southeastern Ukraine. This comes as that country is pushing ahead with its offensive. War correspondent Phil Itner is back with us from Kiev. And, Phil, this is basically a, a race to the sea. Ukraine wants to split the Russian-controlled uh, territory in two, but Russian of, Russia, of course, is thinking ahead of that, too. And so they're making it a, very difficult for Ukraine in that regard. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, they've lined uh, entire, uh, you know, uh, areas of the country with uh, defenses, including mines and uh, anti-tank concrete structures. Uh, The Russians have had a lot of time to do that. 
during the buildup to this counteroffensive. But the Ukrainians are aware of that as well, and they are they are not they've come under criticism for not moving fast enough. Their response is that this is not a race; that they're not this is you know in American football terms that they are running a, that they're they're doing a running uh, play. They're not uh, no long bombs, no flashy. Uh, you know, uh, kind of, uh, you know, linebacker plays, or they they just want to keep moving the ball down the the field, you know. And it's if they take a mile or two or five a day, that's fine with them. They don't want to put their soldiers at risk. Um, their objective, as you mentioned, is to get to the sea and cut off the land bridge that connects Russia to the Crimean Peninsula, where where Russia has uh, one of its uh, major naval. Uh, ports. So um, this is not going to be resolved anytime soon, but they have been running up against those minefields and the defenses. But it seems as though in certain areas now, in the, in the last, say, 48 hours or so, we're starting to see them actually move a little bit quicker in areas that aren't as densely defended as what we've seen them with the minefields and the these concrete structures the Russians have, have created. So the Ukrainians continue to take ground, and, you know, uh, this, as I say, is not a race. They keep reminding us this is not a movie or a race, the Ukrainians say. Um, they just need to keep, you know, gaining ground on the daily. Yeah, Phil, not a race, but the fact that the Ukrainian offensive hasn't gone quite as planned or as fast, I guess, as they had hoped for. How is that sitting with people on the ground, the people who live in Ukraine? Well, the Ukrainians with whom I speak here in the capital, uh, and, and actually in other places around the country as well, I mean, they're fully on board with this idea of not putting undue risk on Ukrainian soldiers costing lives in the, in the armed forces of Ukraine to meet some sort of expected, mainly expected in the West, um, uh, schedule of rapid advance. They're going to go as fast or as slow as they need to go to get to where they, they want to be uh, with, with losing as few soldiers as possible. Um, and that's their, their response to this, this criticism of not moving quickly enough. After a certain while, if the progress continues to be slow, does their, so the Ukrainians' access to enough arms become a factor because there's the constant pressure on the West to keep that supply going? Are there anywhere near running out of ammo here? Well, the ammo is a, is a very uh, critical question, and it's one that's caused trouble in the past and will most likely cause trouble in the future as well. Um, they got the cluster munitions from the United States controversially. The Ukrainians are happy uh, to, to have them and to use them. Keep it in mind, they're using them on their own territory, so they're monitoring where they're using them as well, and they don't want to you know, put them into urban centers, for example, which would be a war crime. They're concentrating on breaking up the minefields that I uh, discussed earlier or, or you know, uh, Russian infantry that is deeply entrenched. Um, so the munitions issue, there will need to be more, in particular, 105-millimeter um, rounds for uh, artillery. Uh, they are well-equipped with uh, tanks and, in particular, Bradley fighting vehicles, which are designed to, um, you know, keep the soldiers inside alive and to be able to pull back those machines and repair them and then put them back into into the field. And so, uh, it's probably not vehicles that are going to be the issue. It's it's more 
the rounds that they need. And as a matter of fact, they're asking the Ukrainians are for more longer range artillery so that they can put pressure on the Russian supply lines deep into Russian territory and in, in so doing um, kind of erode the support system so that that front line is, is less supported. And the Ukrainians, when they put pressure on the Russian lines, uh, if they get these longer range artillery shells, will find uh, a, you know, far less resistance. All right. Phil, thank you so much. Again, that's uh, Phil Itner joining us from Kiev. And coming up, Hollywood is on strike, but the movies keep coming out. We'll talk to two filmmakers about their new movie starring Jamie Foxx and how the strikes are impacting them. Right now, though, scientists are saying July, the month of July, will likely go down as being the hottest month ever recorded on Earth. You might think it's all climate change, but there could be other factors. Noah Diffenbaugh is a climate scientist at Stanford University. Uh, Noah, thanks for joining us today. Uh, first of all, aside from the possibility of climate change contributing to these these really hot global temperatures, what other factors could be involved here? Well, there's no question that climate change is contributing. Uh, you know, that's clear. Uh, you know, the, the climate on Earth varies. Uh, we, we all know from wherever it is that we live that the temperature where we live varies from not just from season to season, but year to year and, and even decade to decade. Um, the, you know, one of the really prominent causes of that variability is uh, the El Nino Southern Oscillation. And uh, you know, we are now uh, in an El Nino state uh, in the tropical Pacific. What that means is that there's a lot of warm water um, across the tropical Pacific that's releasing heat into the atmosphere. It's a regular part of uh, Earth's climate system. And what we're experiencing right now is the combination of that El Nino getting underway and the very clear signature of uh, human-caused global warming uh, elevating uh, the uh, magnitude, the, the pervasiveness across the world, and the, and the severity of severe heat. We in California typically associate El Nino with a lot more rain, but uh, really a big takeaway is that it causes a, a lot of warmer temperatures elsewhere. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're it's you know the effects of El Nino are really just getting started here in North America. Um, you know, the, in terms of the global scale, a really key signature of of El Nino uh, years there is a you know, hot conditions in the tropics, dry conditions through much of the tropics. Um, in in previous strong El Nino years, there's been high uh, fire uh, incidents in the tropics. Um, so we're really this El Nino is really just emerging. There are lots of uh, uh, signatures of it potentially being a strong El Nino. Uh, but what's clear right now is that you know we've been getting we've been getting really warm years globally, even in La Nina years. Uh, we know from from uh, you know scientific research, hundreds and hundreds of papers that uh, you know heat stress is is intensifying as a result of global warming. There's always going to be variability, uh, but the you know the 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 clear signature of change is is from uh, human activities, mostly burning fossil fuels. So, Noah, we're seeing records being broken now. Could we see summers in the future getting even even hotter than what we're seeing now? How hot could it possibly get? Well, we're already in a climate uh, that's warmed uh, uh, more than 1.1 degrees Celsius at the global scale. And uh, we know from research from 
my own research group, as well as from a number of other research groups, that uh, that warming that's already happened has elevated the probability and, and, and increased the severity of extreme heat. In particular, uh, it's made the odds of uh, heat that was unprecedented in our historical experience much more likely. Our research shows that uh, more than 80% of the globe, more than 80% of Earth's surface area, is now in a climate where formerly unprecedented heat is more likely. And right now we talk about, you know, during the hottest times of the year, places here in Southern California, like the San Fernando Valley, can routinely get up to 105, close to 110. 20 years from now, could we be passing off 120 degrees in that area as normal? Yeah, so there's there's really no question in terms of just the physics of how planet Earth works that we can expect further intensification of extreme heat going forward in the future as global warming continues. And we'll see that reflected in uh, the frequency with which uh, extreme ha heat happens. We'll also see it reflected in the intensity of the hottest events. And you know, even if uh, the really ambitious policy goals of uh, like the UN Paris Agreement and the, the commitments that different countries have made for uh, decarbonizing, uh, reaching net zero greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, even if those really ambitious goals are met, we're still going to get more global warming, and that means we're going to still get further intensification of heat stress. My goodness. Uh, and we just had a story yesterday, uh, Noah, about uh, I think it was the Atlantic Ocean down in the, the, uh, the Florida Keys where the water temperature was was hotter than they've ever found before as well. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, there have been yeah. some uh, really high buoy readings uh, yeah. around Florida um, in the last uh, few weeks, uh, including that the reports of the one uh, over 100 degrees yeah. Fahrenheit. Shocking. Yeah. Noah, thank you again. That's uh, Noah Diffenbaugh. He's a climate scientist at Stanford University. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Seedens in for Rob Archer today. I'm Brian Ping in for Charles Feldman. No end in sight for the Hollywood actors and the writers' strikes, but new movies are still coming out. One out now on Netflix starring Jamie Foxx is called They Cloned Tyrone. It's a science fiction comedy mystery of sorts. Here with us are the co-writers and co-producers of the film, Joel Taylor and Tony Rettenmeyer, who are also behind Creed Two and the Space Jam sequel. Guys, thanks so much uh, for joining us. I gotta say, it's not the easiest time to release a new film because uh, a lot of the oxygen's being sucked out of the room by huge uh, box office releases of the last couple of weeks. And also, of course, the strike. How does that affect you guys as far as getting the word out, promoting this? Uh, do, do you wish that uh, there could be more to set this out? Because the, the movie's still doing great. Do you, do you think the strike is holding it back at all? No. I mean, I think, you know, it's obviously it's difficult. Um, you know, it's difficult with the strike going on. But at the, end of, at the end of the day, like, we're just happy to have it out at all. You know what I mean? Word of mouth. You know, people still, you know, do the Lord's work in the world. You know what I mean? People watch it. They spread it on Facebook. And so yeah. we're just grateful that, you know, anybody watching it at all, for real. And, like, fortunately, you know, there's been some word of mouth and people spreading it around. So, yeah. you know, it's definitely difficult on our end. But, you know, we can't complain. We'll, we'll talk more about the movie, and, and uh, I know Jamie Foxx is the star of this movie. Uh, they cloned Tyrone. We'll want to talk to you about uh, what we can expect from the movie. Maybe get a little update uh, if you've talked to Jamie as, as well. Let's talk a little bit about the, the strike and how it's 
affecting you and uh, fellow writers and and and, and actors. Um, uh, Tony, let's bring you into the conversation. What's it like for you so far? I mean, I think the takeaway is just we can't work. You know, uh, all the writers want to get back to work and want to get back in rooms and stuff, and we just can't do that now. You know, uh, it, it affects, obviously, movies that are in production and movies that are in post-production trying to come out in terms of what can be, you know, uh, what can be done even in post. Uh, but it all just comes back to people can't write, you know, and uh, that's starting to affect not only writers, but people that are all down the ecosystem of film. You know, I have friends that work in motion graphics for film titles, and people are getting laid off at those companies just because films aren't being created. So the longer it goes on, the more the effect spreads to people beyond just the affected groups, the actors and the writers. And you're always right, and because you know, as this uh, film w- was getting wrapped up and getting ready to get out, you were already, I'm sure, w- or at least wanting to get ahead on the next thing. But, of course, the writers have been on strike now for almost three months. Uh, you, these these I- ideas that you just want to have the motivation to just keep going on, they have to remain uh, stuck in your head because, because, like you said, you can't work. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it, I think, again, you're blessed in a situation where, you know, like I said, we can't complain because it's a righteous cause, you know what I'm saying? So you're blessed because you, you know, you, you had a movie that was already finished, done, coming out, you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, I think it would, you know, it would be, you know, like tone deaf to, you know what I'm saying? Like complain at all, you know what I'm saying? Like, and so really we just hope that they come to, you know, a conclusion that really gives writers, actors, you know, fair, you know, yeah. uh, fair terms. What what concerns you the most? I know the, the, the big issues right now are the residuals with, with streaming because the whole dynamic of how uh, things are happening in Hollywood has changed so much with, with the streaming era now. That and artificial intelligence, what are what are your biggest concerns? The, the uh, I see we, Joel and I mostly, most of our work, at least up to this point, has been in movies. Um, and of course, there are like issues of the strike that are affecting movie writing, like you said, residuals and like the use of AI to create like IP material and everything. I think some of the most uh, harmful sort of practices that have been happening uh, these past few years because of the switch to streaming have been more affecting to our TV writers, stuff like mini rooms and like uh, very long exclusive windows. Uh, stuff like minimum numbers of writers in rooms. So those seem the more mundane causes. Uh, it's fun to talk about AI, and AI is incredibly, you know, we, the Writers Guild wants to get ahead of all the changes that can, ha- that can affect, how it can affect the industry going forward. Uh, but um, in terms of what immediately seems the most uh needed to be rectified is sort of the stuff that affects more TV writers. Okay. Filmmakers Joel Taylor and Tony Rettenmeyer are talking about their new movie, They Clone Tyrone, starring Jamie Foxx. It's on Netflix, getting great reviews, Rotten Tomato score in the 90s. I'm reading uh, some of these uh, blurbs about it saying it's a witty surprise in the middle of this summer of relatively dreadful original movies on streaming services. That's nice. Also, it's been described as a genre mashup 
that combines elements of science fiction, satire, comedy, and black exploitation cinema, and strong comparisons to Scooby Doo. Is that kind of is that kind of on the mark? Yeah, wow, that's good. I, we, we love that. We love anything comparing it to Scooby Doo. We, we will gladly accept. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so getting the, get, I want to get in your mind as to what went into the creative process because it sounds like uh, a lot of fun just to come up with and I'm sure to execute. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think um, cre- <laughs> creatively you kind of really just set out to, to make yourself chuckle a lot of the time, you know what I mean? And so, you know, we usually find a, find a playlist when we're working on something, uh, find music that feels the way that makes us feel the way we want the film to feel if that makes sense when i when i listen to music you know i i usually if i love a song then i have a very specific time and place and sensory experience like surrounding that music right and the movies that i love give me similar you know sensory sensory experiences and you know when we when we sit down to work on something a lot of times it's you're trying to recreate a feeling that a song gives you or, or a playlist a song gives you. And I think, like, working on this, I heard you playing the rock well in the transition. You know, um, a lot of times, you know, you're just having fun exploring that, you know, exploring that territory, you know what I mean, of, like, this funkiness, this danger, you know what I'm saying? And so it was a lot of fun working on it. Okay, and I understand both of you uh, wrote the movie, uh, but, Joel, for you, this was your de- uh, directorial debut. Yeah, Tell me about that process, uh, what it was like. Oh, man, it was uh, it was scary, but it was fun, you know. Um, scary, but fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, he had a lot of, uh, was, was fortunate to have a lot of really hyper-talented people around. So, like, I just, you know, <laughs> mind the brains of smarter people. You know what I mean? So, you know, our, our, our department heads were, like, amazingly talented, and we got to work with, you know, a lot of our classmates. We, we went to grad school at USC, and a lot, of our, a lot of our cohort worked on the movie as well in different capacities, you know, obviously with Tony and our assistant, our storyboard, our editor was, you know, a classmate. So being able to make something with your friends was also, like, really rewarding. It took a couple of years, didn't it, for this to really get off the ground for Netflix to pick? Did he get buried in the algorithm, or uh, <laughs> what happened there? Uh, no, it, it was a combination of after writing it, trying to find the right cast for it, um, which and, took a few years. Which took a few years, and then you know this pandemic thing happened, and it kind of shut down the world for a little bit. We ended up shooting during the pandemic, which had its own sets oh, of sure, problems. Oh, sure, yeah. Right. Uh, we, it was a completely quarantine set, you know, wore masks, the whole, masks, face shields, booties, gloves, the whole, like, nine all day uh, for months on end. So much so that by the end of the shoot, uh, you know, you really bond with all these people because you're, like, in the trenches with them for all these weeks. And it was like an NBA-type bubble. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They yeah. rented out a hotel, so you really got to – it was like summer. It was like film summer camp. You know? Special bond that comes out of that, I'm sure. Yeah, but the, the funny thing was that the last day when we were finally done, you know, everyone's about to go home. We, we did one group picture with the whole – you know, whole crew and cast and everybody, and everyone took off their masks for like the first time. Yeah. And you're looking around at all these people that you bonded with for the last couple of months. And you're like, who the hell are you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like in here too. It was like, <laughs> yeah. Well, but then what, after that, there was just you know, the post process took its own had well, its own troubles. One person you had to recognize, and and we, it's it really the elephant in the room. We've got to ask you about it. Uh, Jamie Foxx, the star of this movie. Uh, we've all heard about uh, his uh, medical emergencies uh, recently. Uh, uh, tell me, uh, first of all, what it was like working with him, and have you been in contact with him? 
Yeah, I mean, working with Jamie was, you know, for for a first-time director, that like, it felt like he was cheating. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, one of the he, best. He he's such an intuitive actor, um, and he's so intuitive on set and off set, right? So, you know, he he, you know, we've talked about this a few times, but like he he really. F- feels the ebb and flow of the set the morale of the crew and like we had a we had a particularly bad day uh one time and you hear all this laughing in the parking lot and jamie's doing a stand-up set like for the background that was we were shooting on location so we had you know just people from the neighborhood come up so you know you've got this circle of people most of whom aren't even really in the crew and you just hear laughter and like this is a stressful day and so you look over and jamie's literally doing a stand-up set and that was just kind of a a microcosm, you know, of just what he brought to the to the table, not just on screen. Because we all know, like, Jamie's a savant, you know, when it comes yeah. to, I mean, he can sing, he can act, he can... What can't he do? What can't My he do? My goodness, he, yeah. And, he, you know, you're talking about at the highest level, yeah. he, the man has an Oscar, like a best have, have actor you, at Oscar. Yeah, have been in touch with him at all lately? Lately, no. I talked to him one time, you know, since all this happened. Right. Um, kind of when when the John Boyega news broke and John said he talked to Jamie. Me and John actually talked to him the same yeah. day. Uh, I talked to him about five minutes. He was in good spirits. Um, this is maybe about a month ago, maybe. Um, but he was in good spirits. Man, you know what I mean? Right. He seemed like he was he was definitely uh, on the mend. And uh, you know, I've just been seeing it like everybody else, right. like out in the world. So you know, it yeah. seems like he's in the world. He's doing good. And obviously, we all rooting for him to. You know what I'm saying? Just yeah. get back in these movies. Well, uh, best of luck with this. It's called uh, They Clone Tyrone, stars Jamie Foxx, uh, Tony, Joel. Uh, thank you so much for joining well, thank us today. Thank you so much. Yeah. Really thank appreciate you. It. Looking forward to seeing this one oh, in theaters. Sure. Thank you so much. That'll do it for today's edition of KNX In-Depth. Uh, along with Brian Ping, I'm Chris Seedens. We're back tomorrow at 1.